we're going to read through the first five verses. First John 5, 1 through 5. And if you would read with me, I like that. I like to hear your voices as well. <laughs> whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You may be seated. We'll pray one more time. Father, thank you for this wonderful opportunity and the privilege that we have to gather in your name, the privilege that I have to get to share your word tonight, Lord. May your word go out and be spoken. May it sink deep into our hearts, Lord. Let us be doers of your word as we'll read tonight, not just hearers, but doers. Our faith requires a response, Lord. Help us to respond to that call, to the commands that you have given us, Father. Be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So tonight, we're going to uh, feast on the word in the form of a sandwich. I say, okay, what's going on here? But as I start to break down this section, I, I see that there's a little bit of a sandwich going on. You'll notice in verse five, we see the word believe, excuse me, in verse one. And then in five, we see the word faith. These, if you will, will be the slices of bread of our sandwich that we'll dive into tonight. And then in between that sandwich, the meat of that sandwich, if you will, we're gonna look, take a look at three things. Those are love, obedience, and victory. And there's a purpose in that order, believe it or not, a purpose in the way the kind of sandwich is built, as we'll go layer by layer, if you will, and uh, take this apart. And the first slice of bread that we see here that John describes, the base, and that is belief. Verse one says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever believes. Well, what is belief? Many of us might hear and have interactions with people that say, well, I believe in this, or I believe in that. I, I believe I'm a good person. I, I believe that maybe I'll get to heaven. I, I believe in karma. I believe in the universe. We've heard of all different sorts of beliefs, right? Everyone seems to have their own nowadays. But in this case, there's a specific belief that John's talking about. The Greek word, you might have heard this before, is the word pistis, which is actually the word for faith, but here it's in the form of a verb and it's translated belief. And in this uh, case, the verb is pistuo. And so we see the reference that it's a specific belief that what? That Jesus is the Christ. That's the foundation of our belief, if you will. The Greek word for Christ is Christos, meaning anointed, and specifically it refers to the anointed one or the Messiah. That's the reference that we're looking at here. Verse one goes on to say that those who believe that Jesus is the Christ are born of God. Another Greek word, and if you guys have been here uh, when I've taught before, you'll know I'll get into a lot of Greek words. So hold on to your hats tonight as we're gonna kind of dive into these. But I really love the language because it's so much richer than English. It really gives us a better insight and a better picture. Uh, a side note, a small group of us were over for the Feast of Tabernacles at Beth Shalom about a week ago, and we were sharing a little bit. You were there. I see a lot of faces that were there. I was sharing a little bit in Hebrew, and I've actually done that here, and it's great because most of you don't know Hebrew, and so no one can judge me or laugh at me or correct my pronunciation. But over there, it was a little bit different story. They said I did decent, so we'll see. We're going to be in Greek tonight. So again, verse one goes on to say that those who believe that Jesus is the Christ are born of God. And that Greek word is ganao. It literally means to be born, to be begotten in general. It's used in John's gospel, speaking of Jesus. As John says this in John 1, verse 12 to 13, but as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even of those who believe in his name, who were born, ganao, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That's strikingly similar to the verse that we just read in 1 John 5, 1, is it not? He goes on to say in John 3, 3 to 7, Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking 
uh, to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, genao, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter, excuse me, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. And many of you that are familiar with the faith know that this is an essential part, right? Being born again is an essential part of our Christian faith. It's really the first step. That's the first thing that happens. We believe, we trust in Jesus, and we are born again. That is what happens first. Then there's a lot longer process of sanctification and many other things that take place. But this is our foundation, and so those same words of uh, believe, uh, pistuo, and born, genao, are the ones that are used here. And Jesus said that this is not a new command. This shouldn't be new to us. If you remember back in 1 John 1, 1, he says, what was from the beginning, that which we have seen and that which we have heard and touched with our hands, we make known to you. There's nothing new that he's sharing here. And one of the reasons that this letter was written, we must remember, was to combat Gnosticism, one of the reasons that it was written. And it's a reminder that being born again is really all there is. It's a simple belief in Jesus as the Christ. There's no extra burdens. And so John is writing this just to give comfort and encouragement to the readers that they are born again if they believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that's the important part, believing that Jesus is the Christ or Jesus as the Christ People may say, well, I believe in Jesus. I, I believe that, you know, he you know, was a person, maybe a good moral teacher. Maybe he was a, a prophet of some sort. But we all know that that's not the kind of belief that gives us saving faith, correct? What is the belief? There is much more to that. We need to believe that he is the son of God, the one and only begotten of God, that he came to earth, that he dwelled in an earthly body, that he lived here fully man, fully God, that he died for our sins, that he bore the penalty that he didn't deserve, that we deserved. He took our place on the cross. He died, he defeated sin and death. And then he rose again and he ascended into heaven. That essentially is what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this in verses one to four. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And this, brothers and sisters, is what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so our belief is the the foundation of foundation of the sandwich tonight, our little metaphor, but really it's the foundation for everything in our life, for everything in our spiritual walk. And we must be sure that we get our beliefs right. In Matthew chapter seven, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about the two foundations, the rock and the sand. And in this parable, he gives a key difference between the two, the way that you can distinguish those who build their house on the rock and those who build their house on the sand. And do you remember what that is? It is an action. It is the action of the hearer. Jesus says, the one who hears these words of mine and acts on them is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. But the one who hears these words of mine and does not act on them is like the foolish man. He is the one who built the house on the sand. So our foundation is important. We must believe that Jesus is the Christ. We must have that belief. If we believe anything different, we're gonna start straying off the path real quick. If we're not on the right trajectory from the, from the very start, we're gonna be way off base when we get where we're going. And so now that the foundation of belief has been laid, we're gonna to come to the first slice of meat, if you will, and that is love. And we have heard that throughout this letter, especially in the last couple uh, chapters that we've gone through. And this really is the first action step, if you will, after our belief. We know that we're commanded to love one another. 
And in the second part of verse one, it says, whoever loves the father, love the child born of him. Whoever loves the father, loves the child born of him. I think it's worth noting that there's two potential meanings here. One of them is that, and let me say that actually both of them are correct. So either way, whichever way you look at it, both of them are gonna be right. But one says that those who love the father love the child, singular, of him, of the father, namely Jesus Christ. So if we love God, we will love his son, is essentially what it could be saying. If you're taking notes, John 8, 42 talks a little bit more about that. But others would say that children is in the plural form here and that that's a better translation. And it really fits better with verse two as well, where it says, by this we know that we love the children, plural, of God. In this context, whoever loves the father loves God's other children as well. The word father is used because when we are born again, we become what? God's children. We become his children. He becomes our father. So we could really read this as the one who is born again loves the one who is born again. That's more of a literal translation out of the Greek. The one who is born again loves the one who is born again. And by implication, that means all of those who are born again, does it not? Doesn't mean a select group of people that we feel like we like loving on a given day or a given time, but we love all who are born again because we are born again. I think in life, when, when we're born physically, we don't get to pick who our parents are, who our siblings are. We don't have that choice, correct? Much the same way in our spiritual life, when we are born into the kingdom of God, we don't get to pick who our siblings are. He does that. Our command is simply to love them. In 1 John 3:11, it says, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And that message is likely referring to what John shared in his gospel in chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I won't beat you up too much on this. I know we've gone through this over the past weeks and months even, right? But I had to ask myself, and I hope you guys will ask yourself again, how am I doing in that area? How am I doing at loving one another? At loving my brothers and sisters spiritually, the ones that are born of God? All of them. And how about this? Do all men know that I am a disciple of Jesus? That's what John 13, 35 says. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so we can ask ourselves if we think we're doing a good job, but really a better way would be maybe to ask others if they see him in us. And we know that, right? We, we know when we see Christ living in someone. Can we, can we not recognize that? We can see that. It just comes out. It's a natural overflow. And as we looked in this letter in 1 John 3, verse 11, verse 14, 19, 23, and then in 1 John 4, 7, 11, 12, and 21, we see the commands and the words to love one another, to love one another. They're all centered around love. And our theme verse, if you remember from last week, we love, why? Here whispers. Because he first loved us. Exactly. It's not possible for us to do this on our own, is it? We can't muster this kind of love up on our own, but we love because he first loved us. The second slice of meat that we'll now come to in our metaphorical sandwich is obedience. In verse two, it says, by this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. By this, it says, well, what is this? We've seen a lot of by thises in 1 John, right? As we've gone through, by this, by this. And we usually kind of have to reference above and go back a little bit to see what we're referring to. But by this is that we observe his commandments. We love God, but then we observe his commandments. And this verse kind of takes sort of an interesting turn and follows a different pattern than what we've seen in the previous weeks. Previously, we heard from John that the proof of loving God will be manifest in our loving others and loving his children. But here the opposite of given. It says that proof of loving God's children is seen through loving God and seen through obeying his commandments. So it's flipped around. So how does obeying God's commands equate with loving one another? 
Well, we think back to the commands and what we've been given. Let's think all the way back to the Old Testament. We can think of the commands that God gave to his people. In Exodus chapter 20, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. We'll be getting to that shortly on Sunday mornings as we continue that study. But what's interesting is out of those Ten Commandments, there's four that are directed towards God, and there are six that are directed towards who? Others, towards one another. Those are honor thy father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness and thou shalt not covet. These are all relational aspects. And so we could say that if I'm truly loving my neighbor, if I'm loving one another, if I'm loving God's children, the brethren, that's gonna be lived out through some of these commandments. So again, those, those first four in relation to God, and arguably those are more important, but I don't think that, that the next six are, are maybe any less important by that. An extension, when we keep God's commands, we naturally love one another. The commands are laid out in a sense that we show love for one another. You know that all in all, beyond those 10 commandments, there's some 613 commandments that were given in the Torah and the Old Testament. And so are we supposed to keep them all? Is that the question, right? Well, when Jesus comes along and he is the fulfillment of the new covenant, we know that. He comes to end the old covenant, to usher in the new way through the new covenant. And concerning this commandments, he says this in Matthew chapter five, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. And much later in the same gospel, Matthew 22 verses 36 to 40, the Pharisees are questioning Jesus. They say, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And then Paul in Romans 13 says, owe nothing to anyone except love for one another. Why? For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. They might say, well, I, I might be able to do that. I might be able to love my neighbor. So, well, who is that? Who's my neighbor? A man asked Jesus that same question in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's in Luke chapter 10. And you guys know this parable as a man was headed down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was met by robbers and, and attacked and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. And a priest came by. And as he saw the man and got closer, what did he do? He crossed the street got to the other side. He walked by, he ignored the man. Later, a Levite came and he did the same thing. He approached the man as he was getting closer, he crossed the street and he went around him. And who finally stopped? But the Samaritan. The Samaritan stopped. He picked him up, he dusted him off, he bandaged up his wounds. He took him to a place where he would be cared for. He paid the bill. He went way out of his way. And Jesus asked this man in the parable, he said, which one of these do you think proved to be a neighbor? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy, the Samaritan, to which Jesus replied, you go and do likewise. And the Samaritans, as you know, were not exactly friends of the Jewish people. They were ethnically different. They were seen as basically enemies. They, they were seen as evil, immoral people. The, the Jewish people despised them. They would literally, as they were traveling throughout Israel, they would, they would go the, the furthest way possible to avoid them. It would be like we needed to go to uh, LAX, but we didn't want to cross through the Orange County line. So we were going to go, you know, all the way up through Bakersfield and all the way down and around, go, you know, hundreds of miles out of our way because we don't want to associate with those people. But Jesus said that all, that we should love all, that we should love all those who are born of God. In verse three, it says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So we don't just read that and magically it happens that it's not burdensome, right? Anyone else find the commandments a little burdensome at times? I guess I'm alone in that. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like a burden to love my neighbor, does it not? 
Sometimes I have a hard enough time loving my wife or my daughter or my family or my friends, let alone a neighbor, let alone just another brother and sister of Christ who I don't know and I don't associate with on a regular basis, let alone my enemy, let alone someone like a Samaritan. And thank God things don't exist to that extent during this day, but I think you guys get the picture there that we are supposed to love even our enemies. Jesus said this. And it's not just the love your neighbor command that sometimes feel like a burden, right? Aren't there more commands? Aren't there a lot of others that sometimes we just wake up in the morning, we don't feel like doing? It's usually all the commands that we naturally have a tendency to rebel against. That is our sin nature. In speaking on obedience and following God's commands, Warren Wiersbe says this, Everything in creation except man obeys the will of God. Fire and hail, snow and vapor, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. Psalm 48, excuse me, 148, verse eight. Whereas he goes on to say, in the book of Jonah, you see the wind and the waves and even a fish obeying God's commands. But the prophet persisted in disobeying. Even a plant and a little worm did what God had commanded but the prophet stubbornly wanted to go his own way. Disobedience to God's word is a tragedy, but also is reluctant, grudging obedience. God does not want us to disobey him, but neither does he want us to obey out of fear or out of necessity. What Paul wrote about giving also applies to living, that we should do so not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver maybe we could say that God loves a cheerful obeyer. I don't know if that's grammatically correct, but you guys get the picture. I wrote, an immature Christian considers the commands of the Bible as burdensome. An immature Christian. He sees them not as commands, but demands. He is somewhat like a child learning to obey and who asks, why do I have to do that? Or, but I want to do it my way. You guys ever feel like that? I know I do. My own daughter is starting to now exhibit some of that behavior. Those of you with children will know and recognize that. I remember when she was first born, we took her home from the hospital and my wife would hold her and cradle her and she, oh, she's just this little angel, you know? And, and I remember looking at my wife and looking at my daughter and thinking, she's very cute, but she's a sinner. <laughs> and I know that's kind of hard. Don't say that to your wife if you have a new baby, by the way. But In my mind, I knew that this child had a sinful nature. We all do. We laugh because we think, oh, that cute little child can't have. You got a little one. I know you're going through the same thing, right? (laughs) We, We look at this little child and think, this cute little bundle of joy, how could they ever do anything wrong? But at this age, my daughter's a little over a year old. She is already learning to disobey. Probably by six months old, she was learning to disobey. But as a child learning to obey, who asks, why do I have to do that? I want to do it my way, question everything. My daughter's not at that point where she can formulate those words and conjure up those sentences, but she still exhibits that behavior in other ways. And it's because she sees my commands as burdensome. She doesn't understand that they're for her good. She doesn't understand uh, probably the depths that I love her. She understands there's probably some amount of love where she probably more understands that when I'm hungry, you give me what I want. When I'm thirsty, you give me what I want. You change my diaper when it's dirty. But that's done out of love. That's the motivation from a father's perspective or a mother's perspective, correct? See, from my perspective, I think that my commands on her or for her are for her good. They're done out of love. But she sees them as a burden. Let's say I tell her not to touch the hot stove you would say, well, yeah, you're, you're doing that out of love, clearly. See, I'm, I'm setting limits and I, I'm setting kind of boundaries so that she doesn't hurt herself. But she sees it as a command that more limits her freedom and limits her desire to do what she wants to do, to fulfill her wishes. And that sin nature is just pre-wired in us, is it not? We want to do what we're not supposed to do by nature. Paul says that, Right? But if I was to fast forward, let's say 10, 20 years from now, 
My daughter's old enough to know and understand what's going on. And she could look back and say, I get it now. I understand why you told me not to touch that hot stove. It was that I didn't burn myself, so that I didn't hurt myself. So what changed? Well, the command didn't change. Would have been the same command, but her perspective on the command changed. She grew with age. Her perspective changed. Hopefully she's grown in a relationship with her father to know that I care for her and that I love her and that all my commands for her are good. And likewise, we grow to view God's commands and less burdensome. The more that we know him, the more that we connect with him, the more that we love him, the more that we grow in that fellowship. And back to the commands, we know that the Old Testament commands in that law was really meant to be burdensome in a way. The law was never meant to to make anything perfect. We learn in Hebrews, we know that in Jesus's day, there were religious leaders, there were Pharisees, there were ones that would try to heap all these unnecessary burdens on people. They would try to overload them. But these laws were just not practical to keep. In Galatians 3.24, we hear that the law was our tutor that led us to Christ. It was necessary to point to something greater that would come. In Hebrews 7, verses 18 to 19, it says, for on the one hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandment, the law, the Old Testament, because of its weaknesses and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope which we draw near to God. The fulfillment of God's promise is never in our carrying out the law. It's never in our trying to meet the commands, meet the requirements and fulfill them. We can never do that. But Christ did that on our behalf. And in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, Jesus says, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's with Jesus's help alone that we can fulfill these commandments. And traditionally we think of taking off of the burdens and maybe like laying it at the feet of Jesus. We hear that all the time. We take, take the burdens off of our shoulders. We're gonna give it over to him. And that's certainly what we need to do. But in this verse right here, that's actually not what it says. It, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So what it actually says is that we will still be wearing a yoke. We're gonna take one off, the big, heavy, bulky one, the one that's a burden that we can't bear on our own, that we're gonna take off, but he's gonna give us a new one. In a sense, Jesus sees us struggling under this heavy load and he, he comes alongside us close and with care and concern, he, he lifts the old yoke off. He, he puts the new one on. It's kind of a custom-made, custom-fit yoke for our necks, tailor-made. But we still have a yoke to bear. But Jesus is bearing it right alongside of us. And of all the yokes out there, we could be sure that the one that Jesus gives us is the best one that we can be wearing. Amen? Amen. Is the best one. And so there's still commandments we need to obey today. As we think of the 10, there's really one we could debate on about keeping the Sabbath, but all the others didn't go away, did they? Do we stop honoring our father and mother? Stop killing? Stop coveting? Stop lying? No. In fact, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he addressed many of the commandments, and he didn't just take them at face value. He took them a step further. He says, oh, you think you haven't killed anyone? Have you hated them in your heart? Oh, ouch. You say you haven't committed adultery. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust in your eye? And so Jesus gives us really a new set of commands under the new covenant. And beyond that, we have 59 one another commands. And all of those are what? Relational. They're all how we're supposed to love our brother. Love one another, pray for one another, encourage one another. There are many of these that are given all throughout the New Testament. I wrote all of these commands should be gradually less of a burden and become more of a joy. As we progress in our faith, our sanctification, we move from burdensome to not burdensome. We move from doing things out of compulsion to doing things out of joy and love for Christ, recognizing that his commands for us are good. And again, our theme verse, 
for this entire section rings true here. And if I have some liberty to cut up the scriptures again, we could say that we are obedient because he first loved us. We are obedient because he first loved us. And we come to the third and the final slice of meat in the sandwich, and that is overcoming. How many of you guys are familiar with a certain sporting and footwear brand that has a little swoosh as a logo? Anyone? What's that called? Nike, Nike right? How many of you guys know that Nikes are in the Bible? It's in the Bible, but we're pronouncing it wrong. There's a Greek word, Nike, transliterated the same way, N-I-K-E, Nike. You know what that word means? Victory. Or in this case, overcoming. And Nike was a Greek word, but it's also a Greek goddess of victory. And she was known as, as the fastest runner of all the gods. And that's where the actual Nike footwear brand gets its name from. And, and the little swish is actually kind of a, a logo of some wings uh, that were common uh, depicted of this goddess in the Greek world. And so in these verses, it's translated uh, three times as overcome and once as victory. And in verses four to five, it says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So again, three times as overcome, one time as victory. As we kind of saw the difference between uh, faith, pistis, and pistuo, same thing here. We have nikao is a verb, and that means to overcome. I'm in the process of overcoming. And then there's nike, and that's kind of a final done victory. That's the victory that we're going to see here. And we're told that those born of God overcome, or nike, or nike, since you guys are probably more familiar with that, the world. Overcome the world. The Greek word for that is cosmos, and we've seen that before. Um, many weeks back in 1 John 2, I was actually teaching on this section, as the Lord would have it. In 1 John 2, 15 to 17, we read this, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And so cosmos, again, means that this world is the present one that we live in on earth. It refers to the ways and the orders of things here below, not in heaven, not God's ways, but here below, which is really the sinful ways of man that have controlled the world, but ultimately of the enemy, of Satan, that is really running the show behind the scenes. That is the way of the world. A new definition of the word cosmos I came across as I was studying, it says, the whole circle of earthly goods, endowments, riches, advantages, pleasures, etc., which although hollow and frail and fleeting, stir desire, they seduce from God, and they are obstacles to the cause of Christ. And we see this word a few other times, and I'll read a few other verses for context. First, we'll see Jesus's own words on the subject. In John 16, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, in the physical world, in the cosmos, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And Jesus's words here about tribulation are, are really as sure and firm as his offer of salvation and his offer of eternal life. You will have tribulation. Who's excited for that? Nobody cheers at that point, right? You will have, there's one like half hand that's like, I kind of want tribulation, but not really. You will have tribulation, but don't be troubled for I have overcome the world. He doesn't say don't be troubled because you won't experience tribulation, because nothing bad is gonna happen, because everything is gonna go your way. That's not what he says. He says, don't be troubled because I have overcome, I have victory over this world. And we will experience those tribulations, certainly, but we have to fight the battles. The Lord will go ahead of us, though. The Lord will fight the battles. 
In Joshua chapter six, as they've crossed into the promised land and they're met with the city of Jericho, this impenetrable city, the Lord says to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all of the men of war, circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. I have given Jericho into your hand. Past tense, hasn't happened yet. But God says, you already have the victory. You need to walk in it. The victory is already yours, but I need you to do what I'm telling you to do. Paul says this, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Our same word, Nike. It's actually like something like super Nike, super Nikes you could think of. We are super Nikes through him who loved us. That's Romans 8, 35 to 37. We are more than victorious. We more than conquer. And Christ's love is the one that gives us that strength. His spirit gives us the power. Whatever difficulties we face in that world, he's there. Now, what does it mean to conquer over the world system in which we live in, to conquer over the cosmos? I want to start with what it doesn't mean. We've already looked at John 16, 33, and that we will have tribulation. So it doesn't mean we're not gonna have those things. That's a guarantee. It also doesn't mean that you're gonna get everything you desire. It doesn't look like a large bank account or a big house or the car you want. It doesn't look like perfect health. It doesn't look like a utopian world where you get everything you desire, everything goes your way. It's just exactly what you want. That's not what victory over this world looks like. It doesn't look as we want to. Again, it's about perspective, as I mentioned, between God's commands and the way someone that's an immature Christian or gave the analogy of my daughter, the way she sees my commands as burdensome. The same way there's a perspective about overcoming the world. If we overcome the world based on the world's perspective, not on Christ's perspective, but the world's perspective, if we follow that system and we follow that order and we base what we think victory will look like off of that, There's really not much of a victory, is there? Because victory over this world here and now is really nothing if there's no life after this. What does it look like? Having a comfortable life, having wealth, having status of some sort. Those things are fruitless. Those things are vain, vanity. But the lies from the world and really ultimately from the enemy are prevalent. They're out there, are they not? We hear all the time things like, you need to be true to yourself, right? You need to to keep on keeping on. You need to work harder. You can overcome, right? Yeah, yes, we do overcome in Christ, but there's a different kind of overcoming that this is talking about than what we commonly hear from the world. If you'd permit me to be blunt for a second, as we talk about this idea of overcoming the world, say if we overcome the world according to this system and we ultimately end up in hell because we don't follow Christ, not much of a victory, is it? So there's a specific victory that we're looking towards. Matthew 16, 26 says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And what? Forfeits his soul. But we have a different kind of victory than the world's victory. It's the one that is Christ's victory. And his victory is over all the things of this world system. It's over tribulation, it's over sickness, It's over sorrow and and pain and grief. It's over the evil forces of this world. But ultimately, Jesus's final victory is over sin and it's over death. It's over the enemy who's cast into the lake of fire. And Jesus's real ultimate victory we know was at the cross. In Colossians 2, 13 to 15 says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross where he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them. And this word Nike is seen further 17 times, we'll see it in the book of Revelation. 
I'm going to kind of work through some of these in rapid fire, and in a second, we'll be in Revelation 2, so you guys can go ahead and turn there. But I'm going to read out of Revelation 5 as you turn to Revelation 2. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I, John writing this, began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome, has Nike, so as to open the book in its seven seals. Verse nine, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to God on our earth and they will reign upon the earth. And Revelation 12, 10 through 11, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcome him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. Jesus Christ was the first one and the only one to be able to overcome this. But yet that same victory we get to participate in. We will partake in, praise the Lord. So again, 17 times in Revelation, we hear about overcoming. We hear about the victory. And the three times that it was talked about in the verses I just read, we're speaking of Jesus. But you know, most of the next times, not all of them, but about three quarters of the, the 17 times it's used, it's in reference not only to him, but to his children. And that is you and that is I. That we, by faith, get to participate in this overcoming, get to participate in this victory. In Revelation 2, we'll read through these real quick, starting in verse seven. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And again, these are written to the seven churches. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, will not be hurt by the second death. Again, speaking of us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, verse 17. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. 26. He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Over to Revelation 3, verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Amen? You guys aren't excited about some of these. Verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And finally, in 321, the one who overcomes, the one who nikes, I will grant him to sit with me on the throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. This is the type of overcoming victory that we will experience. Amen. As we look at Jesus's victory over the world, over the cosmos, over the ways of this world, that's great, but ultimately it, it looks forward to the greater victory that will happen when Jesus returns. We will be ruling, reigning, worshiping together. That is what it says here. That is the promise that we have. And back to 1 John. In verse 13, skipping ahead just a little bit, he says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you know, excuse me, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is a purpose statement that he gives. And specifically for the verses just preceding, which will be in next week, but I think ultimately this is a purpose statement for the whole book. John gives a purpose, purpose statement in John 20, 31, I believe it is, in the gospel of John. But he gives another one here. 
These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. It's so simple. See, just as Christ's victory over sin and death, so too will our victory be over sin and death. That is the greatest victory of all. But it's not of our power. It's not of our might. It's not of our strength. So how do we overcome? Verse four says, through faith, our faith. And this is the final piece of bread on our sandwich that is now complete. The Greek word pistis that we opened with before, it was translated as believe in first one, but here it is a final faith. I like to say it's more of a, a capital F faith because it is the faith, it is the truth. And when we think of belief in verse one and then we look at faith, we can see that these things are very much related, but they are different. I believe that belief, that's funny, I believe that belief. I believe that belief is the starting point and that faith is the end point. That's the destination that we come to, the specific faith talked about here. In fact, all we have and all we are is through faith. We're saved by faith, Ephesians 2.8. We walk by faith, 1 Corinthians 5.7. And ultimately, we realize our victory through faith, as we see here. Our power, our victory is through faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is full of records of faith. We read, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. It was all by faith. But much as we talked about in the beginning, it required an action. As Jesus talked about the building of the foundations. The foundation is there, but we have an action that goes with it. Just a real quick fly through of Hebrews 11. We know that Noah built an ark. That was an action. He didn't just sit there and contemplate it. He didn't just believe that, you know, that there was gonna be a flood. No, he acted on what God told him to do. Abraham went out from the land that he was living in. By faith, he went out. He took a step, literally. There was an action. Moses left Egypt. Moses kept the Passover. And Moses passed through the Red Sea. We've been studying that through Exodus on Sunday mornings. There are action steps here. And so our faith is not simply saying that we believe what God says is true, but it's acting on what God says because it's true. There are implications with our belief. I often say that faith is belief plus trust. And our faith really requires a response. If you'll turn with me back a little bit into James chapter two, we're gonna read through what James says about faith and our action and how that works together. James 2, 14, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of them says, go in peace, be warm and be filled, but does not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. This is that end goal. Faith is perfected. It started with a belief, but there was an action. And we have a perfected faith, a capital F faith. And that, brothers and sisters, is the faith that saves us. I want to balance out James 2 by just quickly going back to Ephesians 2.8, that our salvation is based on grace alone through faith alone. Works are not a requirement of our salvation. But in verse 10, it says that God prepared good works for us beforehand that we should what? That we should walk in them. Again, implications to our faith. And so who is the one who overcomes the world? Verse five, but he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. A rhetorical question really is asked, but let's not forget that the great victory that we have through our faith. It's such an important and an encouraging reminder to us that we have a great victory. We already have the victory, so let's walk in it, amen? Sometimes I think as Christians, we, we don't do that. We don't walk 
in that victory, we kind of have the, the Eeyore mentality, you know, with our, our heads down. Can you do the uh, impersonation? He normally says, you know, not much of a tail, but it's the only one I got. Some of us Christians, I think, say, well, it's not much of a life, but it's the only one I got. We just kind of go along through life, you know, hoping for the best. But we have victory. Let that be a reminder to us that we have a position of victory, that the battle is won. The Lord is kind of figuratively saying to us as he did to Joshua in chapter six, the battle's already yours. You've already won the battle. You just need to walk in it. Our position in Christ through faith determines our victory. It's not based on our feelings or our current situations. This is one of the whole purposes of the entire letter that John is writing. Assuring believers of their salvation through Christ, not based on special knowledge, Gnosticism, not based on anything extra, but the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and our faith through him. As verse five, five asks, again, somewhat rhetorically, who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Christ. And I would ask you guys, and I hope that all of you would say that you do believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Do you know that you have the victory? Are you confident in that? Are you confident in the victory that your faith will overcome? Do you have a faith that overcomes? Because you already have it. We just need to walk in it. If you guys maybe don't have that confidence, I would urge you to make sure that you have it, that you know you have that victory. God offers that, that free gift of salvation to all of us. We must believe that Jesus is the Christ. We must keep his commands. We must love. But ultimately, it's our, our belief. That's all it takes. Would you pray with me, church? Lord, thank you for the victory that we have in your son, Jesus. Thank you that we get to partake in a faith that overcomes. Thank you that you have called us your children, that we are born again, that we have inherited eternal life as your children. Thank you for that, Father. I pray for all of the saints here in this room that we would be strengthened and encouraged, that we would remember that we have the victory, that the battle is already won, and that it's done through our faith. There's nothing extra we need to do. There's no extra burden but our faith in Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone that does not have that faith, whether you're here tonight, you're online, or even listening to this message later, I would ask, what's stopping you? What's stopping you from believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Put your faith, your trust in him. If there's those of you that maybe had that belief and maybe have walked away, maybe you're not doing so great at loving your neighbor, keeping the commands. It's a simple path back. Repent, turn, trust, and believe in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Be with us as we go out from here during this week, Lord. Again, bless this congregation. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Enable us to do what we can only do through your power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.